Happy History Hemp Day, all of you queer historians out there. I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook, here to bring you a history most queer. November is upon us, and this month just so happens to be Native American History Month. So all November, I plan on presenting some glimpses into queer Native stories. Now, I do have a little announcement regarding the podcast in general before starting in on this week's subject. The podcast's last episode for its first season will debut on the 29th of November. That will put this season at over 30 episodes. When I first started out on this, I only anticipated having 20 episodes. Well, I exceeded that and am looking forward to a second season. There are already fun ideas bouncing around on what will be covered next year. Once the episode on the 29th is dropped, I'll be back again in February with Season 2. Although, there is a distinct possibility of a holiday special in December, but only if you're nice and naughty. Anyhow, let's get back to this episode. When it comes to the people who first inhabited North and South America, there are all manner of terms used to describe them. Indian, First Nations, Native Americans, and First Americans, to name just a few. I recently learned of the uh, term First Americans, which has been picking up some traction as the word native has unfortunately started to be co-opted by white nationalist groups. I may use any of these terms throughout this month. The one exception being First Nations, which applies to those people who originally lived within the borders of the contemporary country of Canada. Now, one of the most well-known terms that regards Native American queer folks is the concept of the two-spirit person. This is a relatively new term to describe people from various tribes who did and do not adhere to the gender binary that now exists on this continent. This term did not exist prior to the latter half of the 20th century, but was developed by Native people to have an umbrella term for the varieties of ways of being that may or may not have fit neatly into the gay, bi, lesbian, or transgender descriptions. Like these terms as well, they're relatively new to the language, and no doubt, as the centuries progress, new ways to describe all of the varieties of queer folk will come about. Anyhow, for this week's episode, I want to take a dive into the life of an Ojibwe warrior and politician, Ozawinde. They definitely fall into the two-spirit camp today, having been born male, but presenting as more female, even being referred to as a woman by their fellow Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, or Chippewa Indians. The Ojibwe people's ancestral lands are located to the north and west of the Great Lakes region. Most of this territory is located in what is now Canada, with its southernmost boundaries dipping into the United States. 
This particular group of people actually make up the largest native language group of original peoples in North America. The Ojibwe people, for the most part, lived in settled, agriculturally-based communities prior to first contact with Europeans. Despite the negative views that were written about these people by French and English colonizers, they were hardly uncivilized. They had their own form of written language and formed complex unions with other tribes for security and trade. The Council of Three Fires was just such a union between the Odawa, Potawatomi, and Ojibwe. This council would often be at war with other unions such as the Iroquois Confederacy and the Sioux to their west. It's almost like the English and the French, two powerful nations, at each other's throats for a little bit of territory and bragging rights. Once those French and English settlers slash explorers started to arrive in North America, the powerful three fires would now have to contend with a threat from the other side of the Atlantic. These Europeans brought with them a handful of diseases that would wipe out millions of people across the entire continent. This would often lead the Europeans to later believe that the continent was an unsettled wilderness. But from the time of the 15th century through to the 18th, smallpox and other diseases caused as much if not more deaths than had the Black Plague in Europe only a few centuries prior. As would be typical of European expansion tactics, the governments in Paris and London would create alliances with various nations in North America, often pitting one against another. This too happened with the Ojibwe. They would ally themselves with European powers in their conflicts with the Iroquois. Eventually, that confederacy was dissolved. For a time, the Ojibwe people would control vast swaths of land in what is now Ontario, and then down into the Great Lakes region of the United States, like Michigan and Wisconsin. In 1745, the British would provide guns to the Ojibwe so that they would have an upper hand in combat against the Dakota people. While it seemed as though their power was growing, it was really truly at its zenith, and so there was only one way now to go. Treaties were established with European powers, but the fine print and legalistic way by which Britain and France understood land ownership was not understood by the Ojibwe. They understood territorial boundaries, but saw land in the way that we would think of air, that it is for the common good for all those living within the territorial boundaries. Slowly but surely, the territories of the mighty Council of Three Fires was whittled down. Britain, France, and later the United States would all be forming treaties that provided more land for the European settlers and pushed the first Americans further west. During the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War as it's known in the United States, they allied themselves with France who subsequently lost that war, and more territory had to be surrendered to British control. In the War of 1812, the Ojibwe would ally themselves with the victors of the French and Indian War, Britain, 
in hopes that this power would protect them from the expansion of this infant country, the United States. While the U.S. lost that war, expansion west by that country was not stopped, and the British were committed to doing the same in what would later be known as Canada. It was in this period of westward expansion by the United States that we find the subject of this week's episode, Boza Windip. In their society, they would be referred to as an Agokwa. A fellow member of their tribe, John Tanner, would write about his meeting Oza Windip in his memoirs. Tanner was an interesting individual with a fun story all of his own. He had been the child of a preacher who settled in Kentucky. His family would be attacked and he would find himself enslaved as a child to Ojibwe people of the Salta band. His initial enslavers were not too kind to him and he was treated poorly. But after a few years, he was sold to a woman, Nitnakwa. His treatment was vastly improved and she took him under her wing, teaching him the ways of the Salta people. Hunting a bear and fur trapping were important parts of life for these people, and Natnaqua managed to provide him an excellent education. Tanner would, at the age of 20, in 1800, marry Misqua Bonoqua, an Ojibwe woman who was also related to a mixed race Odawa and French woman, Magdalene Laframboise. Now, I don't want to go too terribly far into Tanner and his extended family, but needless to say, he was salto through and through by the time he was an adult, having lost his English speaking as well. He would later regain it and work as a translator. This is how he got his memoirs and his story of meeting the chief, Oza Wendip. So this person was an Ogakwa, which translates to a man-woman. This is a person who, while having a male body, existed in society as a woman. Likewise, a person with a woman's body could exist as a man, and they were referred to as Okichitakwe, or warrior women. It was in the winter during the very early years of the 19th century. Tanner describes meeting this man who was one of those who make themselves women. And this Agakwa was the son of Chief Weshkaba. Yellowhead, or Ozawindib, was very prominent in the community. They were very well liked and they had already many husbands of their own. At the time that Tanner met them, he guessed that Ozawindib was about 50 years of age. The son of Weshkabug was intrigued by John Tanner, and upon meeting the man, offered their hand in marriage with hope of living with him. Tanner refused, and again, their hand was offered. For a second time, Tanner refused to marry Ozawindib. The other Ojibwe found Tanner's refusal amusing. There may have even been a bit of dismay from John Tanner's adopted mother, Netnakwa. And she was strongly encouraging this match. No doubt, marrying into a chief's family would be quite a social boost. During this period, the role of women in the society was to seek out new husbands to create kinship bonds. For all we know, 
John Tanner might have also been quite a hottie. I don't know, I'll include a portrait of the guy on Instagram. You can go there and make your own judgments. Anyhow, Tanner writes that he found the advances disgusting, and he recoiled from Ozawinda. It would not be the first time that marriage would be proposed to the Anglo-Ojibwa Tanner. A third proposal would come several days later, but again, Tanner refused. Ozawinda was apparently not too hurt by the refusal, and instead, a marriage ceremony was formed with another Ojibwe man, Ogotote. Tanner would write about the celebration, saying that the festivities of the marriage were joyful, and he recounted that there were some ludicrous incidents, but failed to include a, descri a description of what these were, which makes me sad, but anyhow. For my part, I'm hoping that there was a twerk-off contest between the mothers of the newlyweds, but I highly doubt that. You better believe, however, that that will happen at my wedding reception. While it is clear that Tanner, despite having been fully absorbed into the band, kept some Anglo-American ideals of what we would now call homophobia and or transphobia. Despite his distaste at the match, he did go on to say that the relationship was attended with, quote, less uneasiness and quarreling than would have been the bringing of a new wife of the female sex. This account would be published in 1830, and the Anglo-American world would be given a representation of queer people amongst the first Americans that lived with them. Sadly, it is most likely that Americans reading his memoirs would not see this diversity of the human condition in the Ojibwe people as variety being the spice of life, but rather as more evidence that the, quote, savage people were uncivilized when compared to the white American culture. To the Ojibwe, Oza Wendib and others like them would be viewed not as uncivilized, but rather as special people. Basalto viewed gender as an important aspect of a balanced society. Gender roles did exist. Men would typically trap and hunt, whilst women would farm, collect wild rice, maple syrup, and cook. Still, women would be soldiers alongside men in times of war. Men that perform performed the roles of women and vice versa were not viewed as social outcasts, but rather were honored and given ceremonial roles as these people who blurred the gender binaries were seen as transcendent. Marriage could be entered into by a man, woman, Ogakwa, or Okichitakwe. Everyone celebrated marriages regardless of the couple's composition, which is a far more civilized way of going about things, rather than the savage treatment of stigmatizing a person with the label of sodomite or beating them to death. White societies of this time, and even up to the present day, were hard-pressed to see the value of queer people. After all, if they could not have children within a nuclear family of a man, woman, and 2.5 children encased in a white picket fence, then what good was that person to society anyhow? Amongst the Ojibwe, each member of the society helps the next. Each human being was a part of the whole community, not a 
part of a breeding pair. Despite centuries of concerted efforts, queer First American people are still here, as they always have been, and their importance is still honored. So beyond John Tanner's memoir, there are other ways that we know about the interesting life of Oza Winded. Yes, they lived as a woman, but also served as a soldier. War was on every side. They were born sometime in the late 1700s, so the French and Indian War, as well as the American Revolution, and War of 1812 would have been going on. And those were just the conflicts that had direct European or American involvement. As white settlers pushed the native people off of their land, they too would have to struggle with nations to their west to find land to farm, hunt, or fur trap on. This is why there was conflict with the Dakota at the end of the 18th century. Then the United States, after the War of 1812, would try to forcibly move the Ojibwe west of the Mississippi River into what is now Minnesota. With all of this conflict, it is not surprising then that each member of the community would be entrusted with fighting for their very survival. Alexander Henry would also write about Oza Winded. According to him, Chief Wescabug did try to convince his son to embrace more masculine clothing and roles in life. Most likely this was due to the more chaotic nature of that period. The escalating warfare all around them indeed called for everyone to do their part for the war effort. Henry would go on to say that while Oza Windip presented as female, they were a great warrior, <laughs> and that when they were drunk, he, he used the term he, was not merely a nu nuisance, but a bothersome man. He would also go on to say that they were the best runner among the saltiers, famous for a heroic feat during a fight with Dakota. Despite the complex world that they find themselves in, Oza Winded managed to be true to themselves, but also to defend their nation. In 1832, they would, while fighting the Dakota, be met by an American man, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, who at this point in his life was an Indian agent. The government had given him the job of trying to peacefully end the conflict between the Ojibwe and the Dakota. Oza Winded was on their way to accompany a war party that was on its way to engage with the Dakota. Schoolcraft convinced Oza Windib to instead guide him and his party to the village of, and I'm going to mess up this pronunciation, Gamiska Wawakokag, which was near the origin point of the Mississippi River. Once back at this village, Schoolcraft called a formal council of the Ojibwe, where he argued for Oza Windib to be named the chief, and then presented them with a medal to designate them as chief. The idea was to have someone basically be a puppet king for the United States. Now this is not to say that Oza Windib should be viewed as some sort of collaborator with the United States, but that in the end they were treated as such by the ever westward expanding nation. 
In Schoolcraft's writings of these events, he presents the new chief, Oza Winded, as a brave man, who was a guide not unlike Sacagawea, who helped to lead these explorers as they quote-unquote discovered new lands. Never once are they referred to as Ogakwa. Perhaps this is due to the warrior wearing clothing that was more masculine at the time because they were off to war. It's unclear. It may also be that the Indian agent did not wish to write about a queer person who was also a brave guide and leader. Sadly, this is where the documentary evidence for Oza Wendib's life ends. It is unclear exactly when they die, but I can guarantee that someone who was around 50 years of age in 1830 is most certainly not alive today. It's very possible, though, that they were alive to witness the Sandy Lake tragedy. In the winter of 1850, more than 400 people would die of starvation when the United States government refused to send much-needed food and money that were promised to the Ojibwe people living at Big Sandy Lake. Some of the descendants of the survivors call the incident the Wisconsin Death March. President Zachary Taylor's administration wanted to move the Ojibwe of Lake Superior west to Sandy Lake, Minnesota. The strategy, if one could call it that, was to send food and money that was promised to the tribe to this new location in Minnesota, forcing the people to move westward to collect it. The journey had to be done by canoe and by foot, and it was hundreds of miles of travel. Those who survived the journey would find that the food that was promised was delayed for months. And when it finally did arrive in December, much of it was spoiled. The plan was that the exhausted and starved Ojibwe would forget any idea of returning to their homes at Lake Superior. As I mentioned before, hundreds died of the cold, food poisoning, and starvation. In 1852, Chief Buffalo would go to Washington to meet with President Fillmore, Millard Fillmore. President Taylor had died after only two years in office from stomach complications. Fillmore had been his vice president and was sworn in, finishing out the remainder of his term in office. The meeting with Chief Buffalo did result in the Lake Superior lands being returned to the Ojibwe and reservations were soon thereafter established. But it was an extremely bittersweet victory. Again, it's not exactly clear that Ozawinda was alive to witness these horrors. Of course, this tragedy would not be the only one that first Americans would suffer for the United States' manifest destiny, nor would it even be close to the last. With all of the atrocities committed in the name of colonization and assimilation, it is nonetheless heartening to know that the story of this queer Ojibwe chief is not forgotten and can inspire countless future generations of queer First Americans. Indian country is full of other stories of people who are two-spirit, transgender, lesbian, gay. 
As younger native people are uncovering their stories, languages and traditions about their people that were on the verge of being lost, I have no doubt that more legends and histories will be uncovered. And I greatly look forward to learning as many of them as I can squeeze into my little head. Well, it is that time that we must wrap up this episode. I hope that all of you enjoyed learning about the life of Boza Winden, and I hope that all of you are also very forgiving of my pronunciations on some of this because some of these were hard. Boza Winden was a person that I had never heard of and am now extremely glad that I learned about. I will say that from the description of them being, quote, not merely a nuisance, but a bothersome man after drinking and with the stories of fun wedding festivities, I think they would have been a fun time to hang out with. If I can get my time machine up and running, I definitely need to go visit this iconic Ogakwa. Come to the Instagram for History Most Queer to check out some images regarding Ozawindib and others who were lucky enough to meet them. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints about this episode, especially regarding my pronunciations, then send us an email to thehistorymostqueer at gmail.com. I know that I would love to hear from all of you. I look forward to finding my ways to your ears next week. Until then, bye-bye. Woo! <laughs>